Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I am co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we talk with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Karen Storr about her new book, On Manners, which was published this year with Routledge. Karen Storr is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. We rarely stop to notice that our everyday social interactions, from standing in line at the coffee shop to answering the phone, are governed by highly complex systems of rules. These rules are simply taken for granted, and when we regard them at all, we typically see them merely as instruments for social coordination. We stand on line at the coffee shop and wait our turn, and this rule does indeed help to maintain a civil social order by coordinating the behavior of many individuals who might otherwise clash. Yet when others flout the rules, say, when someone cuts a long line that we have been waiting in, we feel not only that cooperation has broken down, we also tend to feel that in cutting the line, the cutter wronged us in some way. And so it goes for many of the rules pertaining to etiquette and manners. They have moral content. But we must ask, what is the source and nature of the moral content of etiquette? How do line cutters wrong those who are waiting patiently? Moreover, it should be noted that the line cutting example references only one among many rules of etiquette. Indeed, it may seem that the rules governing standing in line are among the more obvious and simple cases. What can be said about rules involving gift exchanging, civility among neighbors, privacy, and telling white lies? When it comes to etiquette and manners, things get complicated very quickly. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Karen Storr. Hello. Thank you for joining us this morning. You're doing okay? I am. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great. Today on New Books in Philosophy, I'll be talking with Karen Storr about her new book, On Manners, published this year by Routledge. This is a book in Routledge's Thinking in Action series, a series featuring books that try to bring philosophical reflection to topics that more often lie at the periphery of academic philosophy. And Professor Storr's book fits this description very nicely and is quite successful, I should say. Um... Her main thesis, and Karen, uh, you'll have the opportunity to correct me uh, if you think I'm getting this wrong, um, is that rules of etiquette and norms of good manners um, uh, that we accept every day uh, and in our everyday interactions with others um, are not simply instruments for coordinating social behavior. Um, Rather, according to Storr, they are expressions of deep moral principles. Um, This is a fascinating book, um, but uh, before we get to discussing some of the, uh, the details, Karen, 
Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project. Yes. Well, um, like many um, philosophers, I was kind of a latecomer to philosophy. I was always pretty practically oriented. I had planned for many years to go to law school and was a government major in college, um, and I picked up philosophy kind of on the side. And then I had this sort of revelation of my senior year in college. I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer, that in fact, I actually liked philosophy much better. And since I was pretty good at it, I thought maybe I would try going to grad school. I had always been interested in ethics within government and within philosophy, but I hadn't really settled on that as my main line of philosophical interest until partway through graduate school. But I had also had a long-standing interest in manners. I had been a fan of Jane Austen novels since I was a teenager and also was an enormous fan of etiquette writers like Judith Martin or Miss Manners. Um, and in fact, my backup career plan in graduate school, you know, in those days when you're wondering whether you're ever going to get a job in philosophy and <laughs> what else can I do with this, my backup plan was actually to be the next Miss Manners. <laughs> but I didn't really think of these, the philosophical interest in ethics and my sort of um, sideline interest in manners as really, I mean, I thought of them as separate interests and separate topics. But over time, they started to merge. Um, and it was a long time in coming. I don't think they really merged until a few years ago when I taught a class at Georgetown University where I teach on the relationship between morality and manners. I had started noticing how much philosophers, especially prior to the 20th century, had paid attention to issues in manners. Um, it's well known that Hume was interested in them, but I was surprised to find how much Kant took them seriously. And I also found that gradually the problems in etiquette and manners that I was reading alongside the philosophy started looking to me like problems in ethics. And in fact, really interesting problems in ethics, nuanced and subtle ones, and not very well discussed. And I also um, realized that they, they took up their pervasive, these sort of smaller problems about manners and etiquette and social conventions. They take up a lot of our actual mental time and energy. And I guess because my the interest in ethics, the philosophical interest, and the interest in manners started to look so similar to each other, it became quite natural to try to treat them together. And I think that combined with the fact that my, as I said, my orientation ethics has always been practical. I have always taken seriously Aristotle's idea that the study of ethics is supposed to actually make us better and help us live better. And it can't do that unless it's actually attending to what real, actual life looks like and the problems that we face there. And this, this orientation towards sort of everyday practical ethics shows up a lot in my teaching. It didn't start showing up, I think, in my philosophical work until the last few years. But since I've started thinking about it that way, it's also, I think, really improved my approach to more philosophical ethics. Well, excellent. Um, so uh, let me pick up on this then, because um, uh, I'd like to hear more of the details about the connection that you see broadly now between manners and etiquette on the one hand and moral philosophy um, on the other. Um, namely, that uh, I take it that you approve of my statement of the main thesis of the book. And so far, I mean, there's a lot going on in the book, lots of interesting discussions. But I take it that one of the main uh, uh, or the main sort of um, philosophical claim you're trying to uh, 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 promote uh, in On Manners is this 
this claim about the a real close there being a real close tie between these uh, ordinary interactions uh, that uh, people engage in and the rules by which uh, they are governed and broader or deeper um, moral questions. So can you tell us a little bit about the details about how you see these uh, manners and etiquette as expressions of um, deeper or more pervasive uh, moral prescriptions? Yes. So there are a couple of things, I think, that make it hard, not just for philosophers, but for anyone to see um, the issues about etiquette as being ethical issues. Um, one of them is that the rules of etiquette are pretty obviously conventional and culturally specific, um, whereas we don't, at least philosophers, don't tend to think of moral principles that way. And there's also a tendency to think of etiquette as primarily about what are pretty self-evidently trivial matters, like where forks belong in a dinner setting um, or wedding invitations. And I think that both of these um, objections are misplaced in some way. I mean, the second one, I think, does reflect an overly narrow understanding of what etiquette and manners are about. Um, I mean, if you're holding up as these extremes, the, the idea that well, we're not supposed to murder someone is a sort of characteristic moral rule, and you're not supposed to wear white shoes after Labor Day as a characteristic or a paradigmatic etiquette rule, then, yeah, the etiquette is going to look not terribly important. Um, but those are really the extremes. Those are extreme cases. And, in fact, a lot of the ethical life, as I was saying before, I think happens in that space in between. So in the book, I use an example of, um, say, for instance, suppose it's Thanksgiving dinner and you know, your Uncle Hank makes a marginally racist joke. What are you supposed to do? Right. That's a practical problem. And it's, it's partly an etiquette problem, but it's also partly an ethics problem. It doesn't fit neatly. And in fact, if you look at etiquette columns, especially good ones that are in newspapers and magazines and on the web, you actually see that this, the territory between ethics and etiquette merges quite a bit. There's not a clear distinction. The way that I set this up in the book, I actually borrow a distinction that Judith Martin, Miss Manners, uses in one of her books, distinction between the principles of manners on the one hand and the rules of etiquette on the other. Mm. And so the principles of manners, as Martin sees them, are these sort of timeless, as she sees them, rules about respecting people and so forth. And then the rules of etiquette are specific conventions about how to put that into practice. And so she says the, the rules of etiquette can vary and do vary across cultures. But she thinks that the principles of manners don't vary, that those are the same. And my approach, I take this approach, except instead of calling these principles of manners, I think her principles of manners just are moral principles. That what we have are these underlying moral principles. And what the rules of etiquette are, are primarily conventions for acting upon or putting into practice those moral rules. And those conventions can and do vary in different circumstances, different places and times, and different cultures. But what they're doing, the function that they're serving, doesn't vary. And what I think they primarily do is serve as a way of communicating moral attitudes. So take, for example, this example that I use. Actually, this is how I introduce Kant's categorical imperative when I'm teaching ethics to undergrads. Um, take the example of standing in line. So the convention that you join a line at the end and you don't cut to the front of the line is a rule of etiquette. 
But I think it's not just a rule of etiquette. In a culture that takes standing in line seriously, and not all cultures do, standing in line is something more. So it's a it's rude to cut to the front of the line, but it's not rude just because some etiquette book somewhere says that it's rude to cut to the front of the line. What makes it rude to cut to the front of the line, I think, is explicable in terms of moral principles. So if you take the first formulation of Kant's categorical imperative, that only act on maxims that you can will to be universal law, you see pretty quickly that cutting to the front of the line because you don't feel like waiting in line or because what you have to do you think is more important than what other people have to do is a maxim that fails that test. And we can see pretty clearly that the person who cuts to the front of the line is doing exactly what Kant says we're not supposed to do, which is make an exception for ourselves. So lines succeed when people stand in them. And so I can't universalize the maxim of cutting to the front of the line, because if I do, then and everybody takes that up as their maxim, then of course there won't be a line, there will just be a mob at the front. And so my success in being able to cut to the front of the line, it will only work if everybody else stands in line. Right. And so the act of cutting to the front of the line is rude, not just because it's written down somewhere, but because in cutting to the front of the line, I'm expressing or communicating the attitude that I think I'm more important than the other people standing in line. And other the people in line, quite rightly, take offense at that. And so even though, of course, there are many cultures, well, at least some cultures, where standing in line or cutting to the front of the line doesn't communicate much at all. But in the culture that does take lines seriously, then cutting to the front of the line expresses something, communicates something about your attitude. And likewise, standing in line communicates the idea that you take yourself to be one among equals. And so this is a way in which I think that things that look like just sort of rules that are written down somewhere, conventional rules, do more moral work than we might think they do. Right. So let me um, just ask a question about uh, about line cutting. Um, because, uh, so, what, you know, I... I go to Starbucks in the morning, like I'm sure lots of people do. Um, and uh, even in Nashville, we deal with people who cut in line. Um, and so uh, there's always a question, though, um, about uh, these kinds of breaches, um, uh, about who gets to enforce the rules, um, whereas it seems to me that um, in the more straightforwardly famous, you know, sort of grand uh, philosophical moral principles, um, the, the question of of who gets to enforce or what you get to do when you see the rules being broken or flouted um, uh, is a little bit more clear cut than in cases where um, these uh, uh, principles of etiquette uh, are, are broken, where it's not uncommon, I think, um, when somebody cuts in a line uh, for uh, – when someone cuts in a line and another person in the line complains – for even some of the other people in the line to um, uh, criticize the the not the person who cut but the person who complains about the cutting, does this seem right? I suspect that depends in part on where your Starbucks is located. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that struck me is I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up in St. Louis and went to college in Indiana. And for graduate school, I moved to North Carolina, and it was only there that I really realized how much of a Midwesterner I am. Um, and in some ways, being a Midwesterner moving to the South is a bit less of a culture shock than it might be moving someplace else. 
But I think there are significantly different cultural norms about the extent to which people feel um, that they have the right to intervene or right. Um, comment on other people's behavior. There are, I think, and I brought up Midwest because I think this is a place where people generally will not do that. Um, and so sort of complaining about somebody else's rudeness um, may also be thought to be rude or um, or sort of making waves when you shouldn't, depending on where it is. I think actually that people are, in many cases, as inclined to enforce etiquette rules as they are to enforce moral rules. I mean, some moral rules obviously have the coercive power of law behind them. So murder, clearly, is morally wrong, but it's also illegal. And so if a murder is happening, then, of course, one can call in the authorities who can exercise coercion. Um, lots of moral rules, of course, don't fall into that category. And it's not clear what kinds of coercion mechanisms we have in place for those. But if you think about the way, for instance, that people drive cars, and I live in Washington, D.C., and I spend a lot of time in traffic and sometimes think that one could write an entire book about traffic etiquette. Uh, <laughs> I will. But the way in which people enforce, say, for instance, um, against others, rules about stop signs and about you know merging and things, there's a lot of sort of collective enforcement of those, of those practices. Um, and I don't know that there's an automatic assumption that you're not entitled to complain about somebody violating a rule of etiquette. Maybe it only comes up, I mean, one question might be whether you have standing to complain. So if somebody cuts in front of me in line, I may have standing to complain in a way that I don't if they cut in front of you where you're already behind me. So right. maybe that we don't feel like we can criticize people for etiquette violations unless we have some kind of standing to because we're somehow affected by them. But I don't think that that means that there's no sort of coercive power. I mean, giving someone a dirty look is pretty, um, pretty impressive. We can shun people. We can sort of exclude them. There's a lot of ways in which I think we, um, we as a community unofficially but quite effectively enforce a lot of etiquette norms. Right, right. Um, well, interesting. So let me ask um, a methodological question. Um, because, um, you know, so On Manners um, is aimed at uh, a broad readership, not just philosophers, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who read books in general. Um, and um, I, I take it that the, the intended uh, audience for the book accounts to some degree uh, for the fact that you're frequently drawing upon examples uh, from pop culture now, very broadly construed, uh -huh. including the Seinfeld show and Larry David's um, Curb Your Enthusiasm show. Um, a lot of the examples in, uh, involve sort of things about Facebook and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but you also draw fairly regularly in, in On Manners um, – you also draw examples from literature, so uh, from Jane Austen novels, Edith Wharton, that sort of thing. Um, now, I got the sense um, that perhaps you see a philosophical advantage um, to these kinds of examples, or that, maybe putting it a little bit more strongly now, um, you see literature, uh, um, television, various elements of pop culture – not simply as the sources for examples, right? It's not just that, you know, 
you want to talk about the age of innocence in the way that some ethicists might talk about a fanciful trolley uh, kind of case. But uh, I, I got the sense from the book that you see uh, in an Edith Wharton novel, for example, actual moral philosophy getting done rather than simply a story being told that gives us occasion for philosophical reflection. So could you tell us a little bit, first of all, whether whether the sense I got from the book is correct, that you do see uh, actual philosophy being done in some of these non-academically philosophical sources. Um, and then if, if, I, if I did get that right, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you understand um, the kind of, uh, the way in which philosophy gets done um, in these sort of non-standard, uh, or at least according to many people's lights, not standard, uh, non-standard sources. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you are right. I certainly see them as sources of philosophical insight. Um, and as, as people who are capable of shedding philosophical light on important topics, um, not all of pop culture obviously falls into that category, but a sure. lot of it does. Um, I have a pretty expansive definition of what counts as philosophical um, thought anyway, but particularly in the case of moral philosophy, I think that armchair moral philosophy is a mistake, especially, like I said, as I referenced Aristotle in the beginning, if the point is to actually make ourselves better. And that's because there's no reason to think that just in virtue of studying philosophy, that this makes you a somehow a better observer of human life. And in fact, the people who are often the really good observers of human life are, of course, novelists and, um, and sometimes people in other parts of either the arts or news. Um, and I think it, it's a mistake for moral philosophers to close themselves off from those insights. So Austin, for example, and I had said that I'm an Austin fan, and lots of philosophers are Austin fans, and certainly there's a way of reading Austin, which is perhaps the dominant one in popular culture, where she's writing basically romance novels. I think that's a mistake. I think Austin is doing much more than that. And in particular, she's making a case for certain kinds of um, certain kinds of ways of living and ways of being in the world in relationship to one's social position and and others. And actually, I should say that I think the popularity of Downton Abbey um, in, in both the UK and the United States is perhaps evidence that people are are looking to narratives and um, for insight about about how to sort of navigate their lives. Austin is making, I think, moral arguments in her books. Um, her heroes and heroines are, are heroes and heroines for a reason. They are features of their characters that make them worthy, not just of sort of the right person falling in love with them, but of certain kinds of social positions that they hold. And so you can see in Austin's novels over the, the progression of them, probably... The, the highlight of sort of the, the person who has it all right in any of her novels is in, um, well, the, of the male characters, it's probably in Emma. Of the female characters, um, I think it, it happens later, probably Anne Elliot in Persuasion. Mm -hmm. But um, Austin has this ideal of what it is to be, to have a good character. And for her, to have a good character is to be able to sort of live out your role well in that particular social situation. And it, she's, there's a lot of critique in there of existing forms of life, especially in the later novels. Her ideal of the gentleman, as I said in Emma, who's probably Mr. Knightley, who I think is her ideal, he's someone who's not just, doesn't just have a sterling moral character, um, but his manners reflect certain kinds of moral concerns and moral aims that 
awesome things are appealing, but wouldn't have been necessarily the predominant view in her time. And you can see as the novels progress, she also engages in critiques of the sort of role of the gentleman. So there's an awful lot of, it, we might just describe it as social critique, but it's also moral critique. She's engaging in moral evaluation of her characters, and she's doing so for, I think, very interesting reasons. Now, Wharton is doing a different project. She's writing in a very different time and circumstance, and um, her interests are somewhat different in Seinfeld than even um, <laughs> more so. But, and I think good, certainly good literature and good television and good um, critiques of culture or um, versions of pop culture, what you see are often very insightful and perceptive observations about the way that we live and the raising of important moral question about whether those are good or bad ways to live. In Seinfeld, one of the things that makes Seinfeld, I mean, of course it's very funny, but it's extremely clever television. And it's clever because it asks just the right questions about these conventions. So I, I start the book with a, an anecdote from a Seinfeld episode called The Dinner Party. Right. Um, which some people will be familiar with for different reasons. It's the one about the chocolate babka and the black and white cookie. Um, but in it, basically, um, the characters are on a mission to get a hostess gift. And they're very single-minded about it. Certainly Elaine and Jerry are single-minded. They think they have to get a particular kind of chocolate babka from a particular bakery, and they have to bring wine. And over the course of the episode, George who often plays this role in Seinfeld, keeps questioning this. Like, why do we have to do this? Why are we bringing a hostess gift? Why does this matter? Why does it have to be wine and vodka? Couldn't it be Pepsi and ring dings? He's asking all the right questions, the important questions, about why they're engaged in this project. And I think that it's not just it does serve as sources of funny examples, but it also, I think, when it's done well, helps us identify where the weak spots are, what the right questions to ask are, and maybe, sometimes, depending on what the point of the novel or the show is, point us in the right direction to what the answers are. Well, interesting. So let, let me, if, 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 if you will indulge me for one second, I, let me reveal something about myself and then ask you to react to it, because um, I hate Seinfeld, <laughs> um, but I love The Larry David Show, Oh, interesting. I have the opposite reaction. This is a fact that people can't reconcile. They think that, well, if you like the one show, how can you, how can you not like the other? I mean, they're so similar. And I guess in some ways that they are. But um, the, thing that, uh, the thing that always bothers me about Seinfeld is how much lying they engage in. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just – maybe this is a, a – uh, you know, maybe I, I'm, I'm, I've got some – some vice of 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 a of a Kantian kind or something, but I just I I, I can't be amused by behavior that is so um, flippant about uh, deception. And it seems to me that many of the Seinfeld episodes are, you know, have the following plot: um, somebody doesn't want to do something that it looks like they're required to do, so they tell a lie to get out of it, and then the lie that they tell is what lands them in an even worse situation at the end than they than the one that they were trying to avoid. And um, I, I, I just – I cringe at it in a way that I don't cringe at the Curb Your Enthusiasm stuff. And almost everybody I, I talk to about these things sees this as exactly the wrong – in fact, the backwards reaction. Yeah, that the I have the other reaction, yeah. <laughs> well, don't you think it's 
good that it shows how deception sort of builds upon itself and ends up messing everything up? I mean, the characters on Seinfeld are clearly narcissists. Um, and, and they go wrong in a lot of ways. But in some ways, I think the point is to highlight that. We're not supposed to, I think, sympathize with them or like them in the way that we are supposed to sympathize or like other characters. Yeah, this is exactly what my wife says. Um, and, you know, I'm, <laughs> there's a sense in which this is exactly correct, um, that Seinfeld is fundamentally a criticism of the characters uh, rather than a celebration of them. And yeah. I take it that the way the series ends, sort of if you weren't clear about that uh, throughout, the whole, uh, throughout the whole series, the final episode is supposed to drive that point home. Um, well, I don't know. I guess the Larry David character in Curb Your, in Curb Your Enthusiasm just seems to me to be um, – uh, he doesn't lie. I mean he's yeah. – he's, he's, he's more he's, sincere. Right, right. And yeah, he is sincere and maybe that's part of what makes the show depressing. Um, <laughs> he doesn't seem to be rewarded. Um, well, let me – Say something. Actually, this is something I meant to say earlier in the discussion about the relationship between morality and manners. Sure. I mean, one of the things that's true about Seinfeld and the episode about the vodka shows this because Elaine is just single-mindedly focused on this idea. No, we have to bring this particular thing as a hostess gift, and she keeps sort of appealing to etiquette as the reason for this, right? Because this is this is just what we do. Um, but it's pretty obvious when you're watching the show that Elaine is doing this because she wants to bring the best hostess gift. She's got self-serving motives for it. And right. she ends up, not just Elaine, I mean, they all ruin the evening for themselves, ruining everything for everyone. Elaine is so convinced that she's right about this particular rule of etiquette, um, so dismissive of George's challenge to it, and so single-minded that she ends up acting really badly. So right. one of the things that I think is that Seinfeld does so well is point out the way in which we can become too comfortable or too reliant either on what we take to be the proper sort of rules of behavior or what we may even have evidence for thinking of the proper rules of behavior and think that they have some kind of independent authority. Now, I think that is not the case. In fact, one of the points of trying to tie the rules of etiquette to the principles of manners is to say that, look, the, the mere fact that something is written down in an etiquette book somewhere, and maybe Elaine is right about what the etiquette rules for dinner party um, guests are in New York City in the 90s. Um, but even if that is true, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good to follow them or to follow them at all times. Whether or not a particular etiquette rule is justified will depend on how well it communicates or exemplifies the underlying moral principle. And so the, the, rule, the characters on Seinfeld do sort of question rules of etiquette in many ways um, and in different ways. Different characters do it. But they also display, especially Jerry and Elaine, a kind of certainty that they know about this is how you're supposed to do things. This is supposed to, how things are supposed to go. And the show repeatedly proves them to be wrong or misguided or mistaken about that. Um, and it shows that... that Acting well and behaving well turns out to require a degree of moral wisdom that, that none of the characters on that show have. If anyone has it, it might actually be Kramer, of all people. He tends to be the one who actually understands etiquette rules the best. Not always. Right. Um, 
He doesn't always know what they are, and he flouts them, of course, pretty frequently. But he has moral understanding, at least sometimes, that the other characters generally lack. So one of the things I like about Seinfeld, besides the fact that it's funny, is that it shows um, what a mistake it is to separate out conventions themselves from the moral concerns that underlie them. Because you can see in the way that the Seinfeld characters follow conventions without any kind of appreciation for the moral principles of respect and consideration that underlie them, we can see just how empty and trivial and stupid they look. Right. So um, maybe I'll, I'll, I need to go back and revisit the show and, and <laughs> uh, with this sort of thing in mind. Um, but picking up now uh, on the idea of a mistake um, uh, or uh, having too much confidence uh, as you say, Elaine does in her own understanding of what the rules are and how to understand uh, how to apply them. Um, I enjoyed very much the third chapter of the book, which is about uh, expertise mm -hmm. uh, in in matters of um, etiquette uh, or matters of etiquette. Um, so uh, I, I want to ask you to just to, to, to walk us a little bit through uh, your view about expertise, because it seems as if, uh, in fact, well, it's explicit. You think that there's a kind of knowledge. Uh, that uh, um, that pertains to or attaches to um, the etiquette, um, and that this is these aren't just sort of social niceties, as you're saying, and not simply you know uh, this is the way you do it because Emily Post said, but that uh, uh, there's such a kind of thing as knowledge, and thus there's a kind of thing as um, expertise about uh, the etiquette rules. Um, I'm wondering if you could, you know, just sort of walk us through the sort of normative aspects rather than the merely descriptive or we might even say sort of prescriptive in a non-normative sense, right, where just somebody says do it this way, uh, the, the sort of normative aspects of the pronouncements of uh, people who talk about eti etiquette rules uh, and what kind of knowledge that is and what kind of expertise it is and how one acquires it and all those things. Yes, so... Um my um, philosophical interests in ethics include both Aristotelian and Kantian ethics. And within Aristotelian virtue ethics, I've written um, and been long interested in the virtue of practical wisdom and its relationship to moral expertise. So the question of what it is that makes somebody a moral expert and in virtue of what is a central one in virtue ethics. Because, of course, it's supposed to be in virtue of being virtuous that... Right. The Aristotelian practically wise person, the Phronimos, um, is in a position to serve as a sort of standard bearer for right action. And so it's an important problem in virtue ethics, and of course in ethics more broadly, to try to pin down what this expertise consists in. What is it that the virtuous person knows or has access to that makes their advice um, first of all, accurate, makes it good advice, and also, in, if in any way, it's authoritative or binding on us. And I think that the problems about etiquette expertise are actually quite similar. So my take in the book is that etiquette expertise is basically just a version of moral expertise. In fact, I think it is a kind of moral expertise. Good etiquette experts are moral experts, and that's why they're worth reading. So my account of practical wisdom as an Aristotelian virtue is that, so I, I think it's true, Aristotle claims that in order to be practically wise, you have to have all the moral virtues, in order to have all the moral virtues fully, you have to be practically wise. Um, I think that is true. Um, and it's true in part because of what practical wisdom is. I think practical wisdom 
involves it's a, involves knowledge, but it's knowledge that's sort of affectively directed in certain kinds of ways. So the person who has practical wisdom is attached to the right kinds of ends, which is the work of the moral virtues. The practical wisdom, as I understand it, consists of sort of three aspects. There's general knowledge about what's good and bad in human life, what's worth fighting for, giving up your life for, um, and so forth. But it's not just that, because you can have that kind of knowledge and yet not be very good at putting it into practice. And there's a couple of ways in which this might happen. You might be unable to put it into practice because you don't notice that you're in a circumstance in which those ends are relevant. Or you might notice that you're in those circumstances, but be unable to discern um, which course of action would best exemplify those? So here's an example. Let's suppose there are, there are people right who don't care about whether other people are embarrassed. But let's suppose that you are someone who does think it's important that other people not be embarrassed or humiliated. So you might have that general knowledge. You think that, yeah, social humiliation is a bad thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good at noticing when social humiliation is happening, when you're at a party and somebody else is being humiliated or embarrassed. And even if you do notice that, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be good at doing anything about it. So one can recognize that somebody is embarrassed and believe it to be a bad thing, but yet not have the skill to actually diffuse it or make it better. And my understanding of Aristotelian practical wisdom is that it involves all of these capacities. The practically wise person is capable of knowing that the humiliation is bad, of recognizing it, that it's happening here, and of doing something about it. And so the last characteristic is the one that makes us think that virtue is a kind of skill, which is a common metaphor to Aristotelian virtue ethics, or a common way of thinking about virtue. Right. What I think etiquette experts have, good ones, like Emily Post and Judith Martin, um, is this kind of practical wisdom. And I think that their advice reflects this and reflects it in ways that show that they're not simply just throwing out existing etiquette rules and saying, here, here's what's applicable here. What they're doing is employing those rules in novel in imaginative ways to new circumstances. And that, to me, is what makes them so interesting to read. Because they seem to have a grip on what actually, on the principles that matter, but also what those principles look like. So there's an example in the book where I discuss an answer that Judith Martin gives um, to how to respond to somebody else's social disaster. Right. And someone has written in asking about whether it's all right to laugh in the face of a social disaster. And Martin's answer is, well, first of all, you can't always help it. Um, but she notices that sometimes the best thing to do is to ignore somebody's social disaster um, because you can sort of pretend that it didn't happen. But in other cases, that's just not possible, sometimes because the scale of the disaster is so very large. Right. And if the aim of etiquette in this circumstance is to preserve the other person's self-respect right, and to save them from embarrassment, sometimes the right response is going to be to pretend it didn't happen. But sometimes, where that's not possible, what one should do is something else. Like, for instance, um, treat it as such an unusual experience that the only thing you can do is laugh or engage in self-deprecation that the person recognizes 
but not uh, the only one to have experienced social humiliation. And it's that kind of responsiveness to the particulars of situations that I think etiquette expertise consists in. But I think it's exactly what Aristotle had in mind by practical wisdom, that it's just, it's practical wisdom in action in social life. Right. Um, so uh, let me ask you now, um, uh, so at the risk of um, uh, seeming ignorant, uh, I was, I guess, totally unaware, it wasn't on my radar screen, this long history of, um, or what I understand from reading your book, a long history of um, the genre of the, the sort of etiquette manual. Um, and in various parts in the book, uh, you talk about um, – uh, the ways in which these, uh, the, you know, the work in this genre has changed, and the the the, the differences in the advice given, uh, you know, a hundred years ago uh, versus uh, more recently. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, about this? Seems fascinating to me that the uh, and now I it seems silly to me to have not realized that there would be uh, a long tradition uh, of of this genre of writing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, uh, about the etiquette manual as a as a style or a genre of um, of writing. Yeah, sure. With the caveat that I'm not a historian or sociologist. Right. Sure. Of course. This is my sort of narrow take. There's a tendency to think of etiquette books is or manuals is relevant sort of now at least only like if you're planning a wedding or something or is um, something that maybe you need only on special occasions or formal occasions, and not something that would be sort of ordinary moral practice. For a long time, instruction and in manners and deportment was part of sort of a typical education of a child, mostly aimed, but not entirely um, aimed at young children or teenagers. So I, I talk in the book about um, the Earl of Chesterfield, who was, a, who was a big proponent of manners, and I think wrongly thought to be defending them only as a means of getting ahead in the world. Right. We see in the history of, of etiquette manuals that it's, it's primarily serving, at least for a long time, as sort of information for children going along with their education. How do you raise a well-mannered child? Um, but it was never, I think, intended to be just that. I mean, I, I argue in the book that Jane Austen, for instance, thinks that there's an expectation that somebody who's been sort of brought up properly from a moral standpoint will also have a grasp of proper etiquette. And actually, this is one of the things that often people don't like, not just about Austen, but about etiquette in general, because they think that it's classist, that it goes along with, oh, if you're the, the right sort, you'll know all these rules. And it doesn't fit well, especially with many parts of American culture that I don't think American culture is, in fact, um, free of classism, but it likes to think of itself as being as being free of classism. Um, and so this association between sort of etiquette manuals or things that you need if you want to be part of the upper crust or you're going to be rubbing elbows with a certain social set. But in fact, that's not what etiquette manuals, especially in the 20th century, were really aimed at doing. The, the history of etiquette, especially in 20th century America, I think is fascinating because of its ties um, to effort to not just to encourage immigrants, but also to meet the desires of recent immigrants to fit in. So take Emily Post, who was one of the most influential etiquette experts in American history, and in fact, probably one of the most influential women in American history. I think it was in 1950, she was named the second most influential woman in America after Eleanor Roosevelt. 
Wow. Emily Post was a member of New York's um, high society ranks, and she wrote, beginning in 1922, a number of etiquette books, which might at first glance look like sort of, oh, if you want to do what the, you know, the, the top flight social set does here, follow her instructions. But in fact, Post's aim, especially in later editions of the book, was much broader than that. What she was trying to do was articulate a sort of way of way of, of living or going about living that was maybe just we might call distinctively American or distinctively um, um, well I don't know it, it was it's more populous than it might seem um, right. she was very attentive to the fact her her view was that etiquette was for everybody in some sense and although you might look at post and say well she lived this very privileged life and she has these characters in her books and talks about how they entertain um, and it may seem that this is just not how most of the world lives. But she was very cognizant of the fact that people, regardless of what their economic, socioeconomic status was or what their origins were, wanted to be able to present themselves well to the world. And she was an immensely popular radio um, and newspaper columnist. People all over the place really wanted to know what Emily Post um, thought about how they should live. And her her standing as an etiquette expert certainly rested in part on the fact that she was a member of this of this social set, and so people trusted her judgments. But she wasn't just reporting on what people did. She was, in fact, serving as a kind of um, maybe arbiter of conflicting social standards. So over the course of her books, and she she rewrote many different editions of her famous blue book on etiquette. One of the things you see is that her, her advice reflects changing ideas about social standards. And on occasion, when she says, so for instance, um, the early versions of the book insist, as was the, a common view of the day, that, um, that girls and young women required chaperones when they went out. And then over, as times changed, and especially after World War II, and as, as views about women and views about um, about social roles in general started changing and that advice became kind of outmoded in the later edition of the book she basically says you know you can trust you know basically um, you have to be able to trust a young woman's own judgment when she goes out and really in fact a chaperone if you know if she's been brought up well she doesn't need a chaperone after all and the way that it's presented it looks as if she's just reporting on changing social practices but of course she's not because post herself served as a kind of authority. It was sufficient for many people to say, oh, well, if Emily Post says it's all right, it must be all right. So she occupied a really interesting position. She was actually genuinely reporting on what people around her did, but not just that, because she was also setting standards. And her, her, social, her standing was such that people would just, would treat her advice as being authoritative in the relevant ways. And it's, it was Post herself as a kind of standard bearer and a much more, um, I think, sort of socially responsive and more populist standard bearer than people often recognize. Post was extraordinarily influential in trying to shape not just sort of the way that the upper crust lived, but about the way that people saw themselves in ordinary social life. Hmm. Um, well, uh... So let me move on just 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 a bit now. Um, 
several of the chapters in on manners um, are united um, in uh, thematically in that it seems that um, one of the uh, one of the features of etiquette. Um, uh, maybe one of the more general features of etiquette is, you know, etiquette is or etiquette rules are about the sort of uh, the moral question about what to make public and what to keep private. So, in just looking at the table of contents, um, there's a chapter about polite lies. There's a chapter about neighbors. There's a chapter about generosity, um, and these chapters have uh, the sort of common concern about. Um, what to disclose and 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 what to keep uh, uh, hidden from from the views of others and 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 how. Um, so let me let me ask a question uh, of a very general kind, and then you know uh, feel free to, to to run with it. Um, so proper etiquette, sort of, it seems to me, uh, often calls me to. Um, represent myself publicly in certain ways that might not be entirely accurate, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't beg the question by saying, you know, misrepresent me, <laughs> right? Um, but it certainly calls for certain constraints on uh, sort of my public face or uh, you've got a discussion of these sort of fronts um, and what gets into the foreground and what gets relegated to the back. Um so it would be impolite for, impolite, for example, for me to say what I really think about certain things when prompted to do so, even if prompted to say what I really think. Right? Um, so, uh, and then there are all kinds of other contexts in which it looks as if um, etiquette requires me to hold back or uh, uh, omit um, certain either facts about myself or certain facts about what I think. Um, so might good manners in certain cases or proper rules of etiquette in certain cases sort of um, create moral problems in that um, in certain cases maybe someone would argue that proper etiquette asks you to be you know to be deceitful uh, and in morality we shouldn't be deceitful um, and so uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about the ways in which etiquette might pull apart uh, from uh, morality in the following sense that maybe etiquette rules are expressions of moral rules, but maybe the moral rules conflict or um, maybe the rules of etiquette are expressions of moral rules that only have a prima facie uh, uh, sort of claim on us. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so one of the objections or one of the things that people often don't like about manners is precisely the concern, and this is one of the things that Wharton certainly highlights well, um, is the fact, and actually also Oscar Wilde, that they, that they can be um, sort of facades and they can disguise hypocrisy and other kinds of things. If, if there's a disconnect between sort of who we really are and the public faith that we're being asked to put on, then we have a problem, well, we have a bunch of problems. One is that we can't really know who people are, but also it appears to be deceptive. And insincere, I mean, in, you'd mentioned Wharton before, so this is one of the, the themes in Age of Innocence, is that in a society that's so ruled by public presentation and decorum, it can seem that we lose out on really important things like candor and sincerity um, and intimacy as well. This sort of space between the public self and the private self that manners we might see as is trying to smooth over, I think is really interesting from the standpoint of sociology, from the standpoint of philosophy. So 
And one of the people who I think is actually most interesting on this topic is, is Kant. Um, so Kant, of course, is famous for his insistence that lying is always wrong. Everybody knows the murder at the door case. Um, there's almost no philosopher in history as opposed to deception, deliberate deception, <laughs> Kant. And right. yet, there are a number of places where it is clear that Kant's views about sincerity and candor are not actually what we might think they would be. So one of my favorite lines in all of Kant, this is from the Lectures on Ethics, in an essay called Ethical Duties Concerning Truthfulness, he says, if all men were good, there would be no need for reserve, but since they are not, we must keep the shutters closed. Right. Kant believed that there were parts of ourselves that we really needed to need to keep hidden from public view. There are, there are parts of ourselves, and not just, Kant is mostly talking in part, I think, about our moral flaws, but we might think that there are just aspects of our lives that we just don't really need to make public. Now, we can ask lots of questions about why this is so, and you can ask this about Kant, certainly, um, and I think it's really interesting. For Kant, I think the reasons are mostly pragmatic. He's afraid that people, if we sort of bare our souls to others, that there's a danger that people will lose respect for us or they'll misuse this information in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I think maybe there may be more to it than that, even in Kant. But this idea that there's this kind of gap, there's sort of how we present ourselves and how we really are, and that it's important that we maintain that distance is, I think, at the heart of what etiquette is. Now, it might be overstated. Um, I'm not sure that there are any rules of etiquette that say that we have to, you know, put ourselves forward as being in a way that we're not. But I don't think there's any question that there are rules of etiquette that tell us um, to keep our mouths shut. Um, about things, or to scale back our criticisms, or to perhaps even pretend that we like something we don't. Etiquette books usually tread very carefully around here. So Post, for instance, has a long discussion about tact, which she thinks is kind of navigating the waters between being truthful and being kind. And it's commonly thought, and certainly this is what I um, say, you know, one of my interest in this topic in general has also come from having children and having to sort of teach them how to navigate these waters too. You know, what do you do when somebody gives you a present that you don't like, right? You don't say that you don't like it exactly. You want to try to say things that are true, but that won't be hurtful or deceptive. And I, there are certainly tensions here, but I think the tensions are interesting, philosophically interesting ones, and potentially also overstated. So back to Kant here. So Kant thinks that you can never deliberately lie. But he also thinks that he says actually that no man in his senses are, is candid. Okay? So although when you purport to be saying what is true, it must in fact be true, especially if the person expects it to be true, it certainly doesn't follow that you always have to look for every opportunity to say what you think. Kant thinks that there is value to being reserved. There's social value to it, and I think also there's moral value to it. This, um, yeah, you had asked, you said something about fronts. Should I talk about that? Sure, uh, yeah, that would be great. Uh, so in the book, I talk a fair bit about the sociologist Irving Goffman, um, who's really philosophically interesting as well. 
So Goffman makes the case, so Goffman is sort of a mid-20th century sociologist, um, mid to late 20th century, who focused a lot on, on social behavior. And he had this idea um, that our, we have this public presentation of ourselves, which he calls a front. And a front he likens to a kind of performance. He thinks that when we are presenting ourselves in public, we're doing so as if we're on a stage of some kind, we're performing. And he distinguishes between what he calls sort of front regions and back regions. So a front region is where we're on. We're sort of doing our thing. We're, we're presenting ourselves in the way that we want to be seen. And we engage in all kinds of behaviors to sort of give off that impression. So for, for Goffman, much of our social behavior, in fact, Goffman thought pretty much all of our social behavior, is a kind of impression management. But importantly, he also thought that my ability to maintain a front is collaborative. It depends on my audience being willing to go along with this. So in the book, I use an example um, of a dinner party going wrong. So I'm, I'm trying to host a dinner party, I'm trying to cook, and um, you know, I, I overcook the food. Um, and often in this case, we think that sort of polite and tactful people will say things like my dinner guests, if they're being polite and tactful, will say things like, oh, it's not really that overcooked. Yeah, or, you know, oh, it's, it's better this way. Or, you know, <laughs> best, you know, to err on the side of, you know, well done to avoid food poisoning. Right. Something that, that other people help me collaborate in trying to present myself to the world this way. Now, Gottman thought that we do this all the time, that there's, um, there's no circumstances which we're not doing this. Although he recognizes that there are spaces in which, which he calls these back regions, in which we let down some of those barriers, where we might be what we describe as sort of more ourselves, you know, space maybe among friends, where we feel like we can really let down our guard or not be just trying to present ourselves in a particular way. Now, Kant saw the value of being able to do that. In his discussions of friendships, he talks about the, the value of having a friend with whom one can really be candid, one can really talk about you know, what one actually thinks and present oneself sincerely. But he also recognizes that this is a difficult task because he believes that it is extremely hard for human beings to live up to what our actual moral standards are. So Kant says in a number of places, he talks about um, the need for the social graces um, and for politeness. And it's not just as um, to serve as a kind of coordination rule, but it's also because he thinks that in acting politely, what we are doing is, first of all, he doesn't think it's always deceptive. He thinks that in some cases, actually, in many cases, it's not deceptive because people know that we're just being polite. So if it's obvious that the meat is overcooked and I say something like, no, it's great. And nobody thinks that I'm actually telling the truth there. So I'm not actually deceiving anyone. But Kant thinks that when we act on our, when we act politely, we're doing what he calls, he says, it's an illusion in some ways. It's not representative of what we actually are or how we actually feel. But what it is, he thinks, is a representation of something that is valuable. He calls it an illusion. And he thinks that acting politely enables us to bring this illusion closer to the truth. Right. So my take in the book, in, an, um, in other work that I've been doing this for Kant, is that Acting, sort of putting on a front of some kind, a front of politeness, 
is, first of all, not deceptive insofar as people know that we're doing it, but it's also a way of expressing um, a commitment to a certain kind of ideal of behavior that for Kant is quite important. Right. Um, interesting. So uh, we've got time for one more question. You've been very generous with your time, um, and I thank you for that. Um, so one of the um, uh, recurring examples uh, throughout the book um, are these sort of examples about Facebook and social networking and this very, very strange feature on Amazon about uh, how you can return gifts that people give you without letting them know that you've returned them. Um, and so uh, I, I want to just ask a very, very general question. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's kind of an unfair question to ask with, with, with very little time. But um, what do you think of the effects or what do you think the effects are on etiquette and manners of um, uh, a, a world in which, um, through technology, uh, so many of our interactions are mediated in uh, new and in some ways disorienting ways, um, and uh, there's a lot more anonymity um, that uh, which you can interact with people in all kinds of ways which uh, are anonymous. Uh, what do you think the effect of all these uh, uh, technologies are on or will be on, um, on etiquette and manners more generally? So I think that the distancing phenomenon is not necessarily a new one, but an increasingly important one. The fact that more of our interactions take place in a way that's mediated, say, for instance, through a computer or through something else. So it's well known that people behave differently when they're driving cars than when they're sort of walking around city streets. In part because people, when you're interacting with a driver in another car, they don't seem as much like a person to you in an important right. way. And so one of the things that technology does is to distance us from the actual human beings with whom we're interacting. And this can have certainly negative effects. It can make it harder, I think. So Kant describes... Um, these two great moral forces in the world, love and respect. Love draws us closer to people. Respect tells us to keep our distance from them. I think that when we're talking about technology, it has a way of transforming how that relationship works in practice. So there's a chapter in the book where I talk about neighbors, about being in physical proximity with someone, as sort of transforming what the boundaries of both love and respect are. And I think technology can do that sort of in the opposite direction because it creates more distance between us, physical distance and conceptual distance between us. On the other hand, there's other ways in which technology has um, brought people closer together. So Facebook is an obvious example of this. But thinking, for instance, just in the way that people hold conversations. So the standard rules of etiquette have always been that when you are talking to someone in person, you're supposed to ignore interruption. So if you're having a personal conversation with someone and the phone rings, at least the old-fashioned kind that plugged into the wall, um, you're supposed to ignore it because the person in front of you is supposed to have priority. Now, as many um, sort of people of a certain age know that this is not the way that um, <laughs> younger people operate anymore. That's right. Um, and so people will often complain that they're teenagers um, or other people are texting or answering text messages while they're conversing with someone. And one way to see this is a, is a total flouting of an etiquette rule. Um, but I'm not sure that's actually right. In fact, I think that instead what it shows is that our ways of thinking about conversations have changed. 
So under that old etiquette system, if I was having a personal conversation with you in person and somebody else came up to us, we wouldn't be entitled to ignore them. We would have to acknowledge their presence. It would be rude to acknowledge someone in person. And I think that the way in which we now think about conversations with people through technology means that we're... Um, that converse, the idea of a conversational partner has shifted. In fact, college students say, um, I, when I ask them this, they generally think it's rude to ignore somebody's text. In the same way that it would be rude to ignore somebody who'd approached you in person while you were conversing with someone else. Right. So I think, I mean, it's a big and complicated issue about how technology transforms it. I'm not convinced that technology is always making things worse. It makes it easier to be anonymous. It makes it harder to maintain some sense of boundaries because we know so much about ourselves and Google knows everything about us. <laughs> but on the other hand, it also has a way of trying to expand the scope of our moral concerns to include a sort of a broader range of thinking about people. And so I, don't, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, some of the old rules apply. Sometimes there are new rules. But again, if they're all motivated by the same kinds of moral concerns, there should be some continuity. Well, uh, Karen Storr, uh, thank you once again uh, for uh, your time. You've been very generous, and uh, I've uh, really uh, enjoyed talking to you about your about your your new book on manners. Great, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a lot of fun. Well, great. Um, uh, have a nice day, and uh, 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 thanks once more. Thank you very much. Bye bye now. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Karen Storr of Georgetown University. We've been talking about her new book, On Manners, published this year by Routledge. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.